fear of losing control. Fear of losing control. Uh, we all know from our personal experience that uncertainty breeds fear. Uh, faced with an uncertain outcome, our natural instinct is to jump straight into action, to do all that we can to kind of control the situation and guarantee a good outcome. Because when we face a situation where we're losing control and there's, there's nothing that we can do about it, that's when we really start to get afraid and distressed. Uh, to be sure, we are witnessing that on a global scale right now with the onset of the coronavirus. And what is spreading faster than the virus itself is fear. Fear that the virus is not going to be contained, fear of a global epidemic, fear of widespread deaths and the onset of a global recession and who knows what else. And in the grip of that fear, we see our world struggling to take back control through whatever measures, no matter how extreme they may be. And yet despite all that is being done, for many, the unknown remains and the fear continues to take hold, fear that we're losing control. But whether it's the coronavirus or something else, we are forced time and time again to face the painful truth that we're actually not in control of our lives, whether it was the bushfires in Australia recently, the riots in Hong Kong, the nuclear programs in North Korea or Iran, our world seems anything but under control. And what we experience on a global scale, we experience on a personal level as well. And maybe right now you feel like your life is kind of spinning out of control. You're going through a relationship breakdown or there's a, or there's a sickness or there's a, a mental health issue that it's taking its grip, or a bereavement that you feel, or a failed exam, or uncertainty about the finances, and you're feeling afraid, and you're feeling distressed, and you've lost control, and you don't know what to do, and you don't know where to turn. But of course, if there's one area that reveals our lack of control the most, it is death itself. It is the untamable foe. And before death, our natural response is fear. I know of an elderly man who will not board a plane because he's so afraid the plane will crash. Or if he gets the slightest cough or joint pain, he's straight off to the specialist. He's a man that has all, all that many people desire. He's rich, he's comfortable, he's got a loving family but faced with his own mortality, he's constantly in the grip of fear. Well, when things are out of control, where should we turn? Faced with our fears, where is hope to be found? Well, Mark wants us to see today that we do not need to be afraid. Uh, in fact, he wants us to see that fear is actually a mark of the absence of faith. Whether we live in fear or in faith says a lot about who we think Jesus really is. We're now into a new section of Mark's Gospel. We saw in chapter 1 that uh, Jesus burst onto the scene proclaiming the kingdom of God is near, demonstrating his kingly authority as the one who would establish that kingdom. And even though Jesus' identity has been clearly uh, revealed through his miracles and through his preaching, 
he has not always been met with faith. Some accept him as the Christ and, and leave everything to follow him. Others, like the crowds, just come for the miracles, the parables, and then off they go back home. And the religious leaders rejected him outright and are now plotting his death. And that first major section of Mark's gospel ended in chapter 4 last week with the parables. Uh, and there, Jesus himself explains the reason for all these different responses. The kingdom is small, it is hidden, it is growing gradually. It will be revealed to those who listen. It will be revealed to those who come to Jesus in faith, but it will be hidden from those who do not. And so as we come to this next section, Mark wants us to explore the nature of real faith and why we need it. And uh, in this section, Mark divides it up, not by Jesus just passing by the sea, but now crossing over the sea multiple times. Well, let's uh, begin uh, with point one, trusting Christ who rules over creation. The coming of the storm is, of course, a classic Bible episode, uh, and its meaning is revealed to us by those three questions that come within it. Do you care? Have you still no faith? Who then is this? Well, Mark sets the scene in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now, we must understand that for the Jews, the sea was a dangerous place. It represented for them chaos and death and the forces opposing to God. They lived on land. They didn't like the sea. Uh, that's why in Genesis 1 verse 3, at the, right at the start of the Bible, the Spirit of God is, is hovering over the waters uh, before the creation begins. It's, it's, creation's in a state of, of chaos from which God brings the order. And it's also why at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 verse 1, we read that in the new creation, there's no longer any sea. Sea means chaos. Sea means disorder. And this storm is a great windstorm. Now, we need to remember that uh, at least four of Jesus' disciples here uh, were professional fishermen, right? They had spent their entire lives to this point fishing on that sea. If anyone should not be afraid of the storm, it is them. But this great windstorm is like nothing they have ever seen. And as the waves start to crash and the, and the waters begin to fill the boats, they're now thinking to themselves, this is it. You know, we are done for. We are, we are finished. And in great contrast, verse 38, there is Jesus. He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, just like a Jonah in the midst of his storm, totally unafraid, totally at peace. As a side note, Jesus' sleep here tells us about his humanity. Jesus got physically exhausted, just like any other human being. He needed rest too. But verse 39, they want to wake Jesus to ask their first question. They say to him, verse 39, Teacher, do you not care that we are 
perishing. And, and their question reflects their, their frustration and their desperation. They're, they're helpless. They're, they, they, they're giving up almost. And they, they, they think that Jesus is just abandoning them to death as he's sleeping in the boat. Now, Peter Bolt explains in his commentary on Mark that questions in Mark's gospel are very important because as we read a question in the gospels, they very quickly become our own questions. See, once we've heard the question, we too also want to know the answer to it. And, it, and so it shapes our expectations from now on. So what's the answer to the question? Does Jesus care that we are perishing? We all are dying, aren't we? Some of us are closer to death than others. Some of us have come face to face with death more recently than others with the loss of a loved one or the impending loss of a loved one? Does Jesus care? This question reveals the disciples' fear. They fear death, as all humans do. Hebrews 2 says this, Jesus came to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is the perpetual human problem. It is a subject that we seek to suppress from our conversations, avoid in our thoughts, and do everything with our actions to delay and avoid. Because death is that enemy that robs us of everything that we value in life. And we fear it because we fear what comes next. Does Jesus care about our fear of death? Well, verse 39, we get the answer. He awoke, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So one moment, the storms are raging, and the waves are crashing, and the lightning is smashing. It's a great and terrifying storm, and the next moment... Peace, quiet, still. The great storm is now a great calm. Now, I live on the top of a, uh, on the 15th floor of a condo that is on the top of a mountain, and uh, we can experience there some pretty violent thunderstorms, uh, sometimes to the point that I'm honestly absolutely terrified. Uh, and I can assure you my natural instinct at that point is not to say, shh, like I was talking to my baby. <laughs> See, I, a normal human being doesn't have that kind of, of, of power. Rather, I, sometimes I'm on my knees praying, Lord, deliver me. <laughs> Give me a little bit longer. But the storm doesn't stop. The, the lightning crashes on. Now, notice the choice of words here by Mark. Jesus rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, he rebukes the wind, just as he silenced the evil spirits in chapter 1, verse 21. He rebukes the wind like he rebuked the demons in chapter 3, verse 12, when they sought to make his identity known. Because this, this storm is an expression of a world that has gone wrong, a world that is cursed, a world that is under the judgment of God. This storm was not meant to be in God's good world. And Jesus commands that it cease. 
So, so the violence of the so-called natural disasters around us, whether it's fires or floods or storms or earthquakes, they remind us that we live in a world where life is fragile, where all that we have can be taken from us in a moment. We live in a world that is under the curse of God. It's natural to fear, feel fear. And yet here we meet one who has control even over creation, who speaks and creation responds, just like at the very beginning when God created the world. Let there be light. And there was light. And so Jesus turns to them in verse 40. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, their fear is only understandable so long as we forget who's with them in the boat, isn't it? We need to remember the disciples have seen his miracles, how he's healed multitudes with a single word, how he's driven out demons, he's taught with authority, he's commanded people to follow him, they've left everything and done it immediately. See, the reason that they're afraid is that despite all that they have seen, they have not yet understood who he is. They've not yet arrived at a stable trust in him. They're still hovering in fear. And here begins a theme that will run throughout Mark's gospel to the very last verse. Fear or faith. Fear or faith. And notice how Jesus presents these options to us as mutually exclusive, as opposites. Why are you still why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Their fear betrays a lack of faith. Their fear is totally natural in the face of this terrifying storm, but totally irrational when they consider who's in the boat with them. And so the real question then is, have we recognized who Jesus really is? And that's the third question we're left to ponder in verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So initially they're afraid of the storm, but now they're filled with an even greater fear of someone who has such power over the storm. That's just like in the story of Jonah once again. Remember the sailors, they're initially afraid of the storm, but in the end, afterwards, they're even more afraid of the God who made the storm stop. Uh, we read there, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. See, faced with someone who has sheer, uncontained power over the created world, that is a terrifying experience. And there can only be one answer to their question, isn't it? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, of course, he must be God himself. Jesus is divine. In Genesis 1, God speaks, creation obeys. In Exodus, God blows the east wind and the Red Sea parts. In Jonah, God stills the storm, one moment raging, the next moment completely still. And in the Psalms, it is God who, rage, rage, uh, who stills the raging waters. Psalm 107, we read, They cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. There's only one conclusion here 
God himself is in the boat. Jesus is the divine Son of God. Fully man, yes. Fully God. The creator, the redeemer of creation. Well, how should we apply this passage? Uh, it's quite common to be applied rather poorly, quite honestly. Uh, most of the time, people will like to allegorize this particular story. So they'll say, just as Jesus saved the disciples from the storms in their life uh, and delivered them from their fears, so he will do for you if you have faith in him. And so they will go on, whether you're tossed by the storms of sickness or unemployment or depression or a relationship breakdown, God will see you through the storm. Just trust him. Now, of course, there is some truth to that. Right? God promises he will always be with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He promises he will hear our prayers and answer them according to his will. He promises that he will work all things for the good of those who love him. God is there for us in the midst of the storms of life. His comfort, his love, his presence are inexhaustible for his people. But those are not the problems that the disciples are facing in the boat, are they? Their problem is death. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? See, the focus of this passage, indeed every passage in this new section of Mark's gospel, is salvation from death. In this episode, they're saved from certain death in the storm. In the next, we'll see in a moment, there's a demon-possessed man who's living in the tombs. The following story is Jairus' daughter who is raised from death and the women suffering a flow of blood, shed blood, of course, a very uh, uh, obvious image for death. Mark doesn't have in mind an allegory in this story, but a reality he is dealing with a very particular fear, the fear of death. See, the reality is that if Muhammad was in the boat, or Buddha, or Krishna, or the Dalai Lama, or Joseph Smith, or Donald Trump, or Boris Johnson, or whoever else you want to put in that list, they couldn't be of any help, could they? It wouldn't matter if they cared, or how much they cared, they would have no power to do anything to save from death. There's only one person who can save from death. The one who created this world, Jesus himself, God in human flesh. This passage is asking us, have we recognized Jesus for who he is? Our only hope in the face of death. Or are we afraid? Do we still have no faith? See the question? Fear or faith? Do we trust Jesus even in the face of death? And if I would trust him even in the face of death, would I trust him amidst all the other fears that I have as well? Fear or faith? Our fear is the measure of our faith. Well, the second story also relates to the concept of death. We're at now at point two, trusting Christ who rules 
over evil. And in verses 1 to 5, we're introduced to a person in the very grip of evil and death. Verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs. And on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So here we find a man who is possessed with a legion of demons. He is seemingly unsavable. You know, notice the repetition here of the word tombs in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 5. He lived among the tombs day and night. He is constantly under the shadow of death. He's on the verge of killing himself as he cuts himself with these stones and cries out always. This man is uncontrollable. He is, he is so empowered by these demonic by this demonic strength that no one can contain him. It doesn't matter what chains, what shackles. No one is able to subdue this man. And he is possessed not by one demon, but a legion of demons, perhaps thousands of demons. Here is a man at the point of death, in the grip of evil, seemingly beyond hope, beyond redemption. Jesus gets out of the boat, though, and the great showdown is really no showdown at all, is it? From afar, he gives up. He just comes running over and kneels down before Jesus. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So even from the distance, this demoniac recognizes Jesus. The disciples still haven't worked it out. They say, who is this man who, that the wind and the waves obey him? But the demon is very clear. Jesus is the son of the most high God. And he too is afraid of Jesus. Afraid of the goodness of Jesus. And he'll be tormented by the goodness of Jesus. Here is Jesus, the stronger man, come to defeat Satan and his forces. The demon knows it. Now, isn't it interesting how often the in the Gospels, the demons themselves take the initiative in the presence of Jesus. And they, they cry out to him and they bow down before him. They acknowledge Jesus immediately for the rule and the power that he has. Well, Jesus turns to this poor man. Verse 9, he says, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So it's clearly the demon that is, is speaking as he converses with Jesus. 
And we notice here, even, even entering the pigs, they need Jesus' permission to do that. The, the demons can't do anything outside of what Jesus allows them to. He is totally sovereign, even over this evil force that no one else can contain or subdue. Now, sometimes people say, isn't it unfair for the pigs? What did the pigs do that the 2,000 pigs had to go down into the sea? Well, I guess this, the pigs show us a couple of things, don't they? First, they, they help us to see how desperate the man's situation really was. Right? All this legion of demons is in one man, enough to kill 2,000 pigs. But before we have too much compassion for the pigs, does it not show how valuable the man is in comparison to the pigs? Compared with the redemption of this one human being, the loss of 2,000 pigs does not bear mentioning. Such is the mercy of Jesus. Well, what of the men? Verse 15, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. See, here we are once again with the theme of fear and faith. See, what is more terrifying than a man with untamable strength who cannot be bound? Well, one who has power even over those evil forces. Here is the man, now clothed, sitting there. This violent, uncontrollable man, perfectly well. How will they respond to this tremendous miracle? Fear or faith? Well, verse 16, we see it. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So faced with this kind of power, they want Jesus to be far away. They are afraid. I guess they are more interested uh, in their own livelihoods, in their own peace and quiet, than having Jesus maybe killing a few more of their pigs, which, by the way, were unclean animals for the Jews as well. And the saddest thing in this story, I think, is that Jesus grants their request and he leaves. They reject him and he leaves, he rejects them. But isn't there a striking contrast between the attitude of the crowds and of this healed demoniac? Look at his response in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him, that he might be with him. So the demons are begging for leniency. You know, don't torment me, Jesus. The crowds are there begging Jesus, depart, keep away, far away. And this man begs Jesus to let him be with him. The crowds want to be far. This liberated man wants to be near. He wants to follow Yes, Jesus is powerful. Yes, Jesus can command a legion of demons and they are forced to obey him. But he's also good as well. Now, surprisingly, Jesus doesn't let him follow. See that in verse 19. 
He did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And so he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now you might remember uh, in chapter 1, when Jesus healed the leper, Jesus told him, forbid him from speaking about him. So why does he allow this man to speak and the leper is not allowed to speak? I guess the difference is, for the leper, there was already a crowd that knew Jesus. But here, where the demoniac lives, it's him alone. And Jesus has already left. So Jesus, by letting him stay behind, is ensuring that he will witness to that region, despite their rejection of him. He is given a mission, and he fulfills that mission Well, he proclaims God's deeds. He proclaims God's mercy. And notice Mark's unmistakable point about the identity of Jesus. Jesus says, tell your friends what the Lord has done for you. And he proclaims to the cities what Jesus has done for him. Mark doesn't want us to miss the identity of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He is divine. And he is worthy to be proclaimed, not only to our friends, that's what Jesus commands, but to the cities, to the masses. He is our hope in the face of death. He is our hope when everything is hopeless. He is the sovereign God who is perfectly in control of everything in this world, even over death, even over demons. This man gets it. And so he gets on with the mission. Well, what do we learn from this passage? Firstly, believe Jesus is sovereign. I think one of the reasons we feel so afraid is that we face situations where we're not in control. Things seem bad, and what makes it worse is it looks like there's nothing we can do to change it. But faced with those situations we do not need to fear because there is one who commands creation there is one to whom evil must submit Jesus our Lord is sovereign even now he sits on the throne of heaven he rules this world and so if we are a Christian life is never out of control as bad as it may seem even when it's a case of of life and death Jesus has not lost control. Indeed, we will see next week, he is able to save not just from death, but he can raise people from death as well. Jesus has risen from death. He has guaranteed for all who follow him an eternity past the grave. We need not fear, for he is sovereign. But it's not just about believing that Jesus is sovereign and powerful. We need to believe that he is good as well. And it's interesting in the stories, isn't it? Whenever whenever Jesus performs these miracles, the initial response is just more fear. The great windstorm leads to a great calm, which then leads to great fear. Jesus defeats the demon-possessed men. They beg Jesus to leave. They're afraid of the legion, and then they're afraid of Jesus. But it's the demon-possessed man who gets it right, isn't it? He not only recognizes the power of Jesus, he recognizes the goodness of Jesus. 
He wants to be with Jesus because he sees that Jesus uses his power to have mercy. He uses his power to save. Now, C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this in the book, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm sure you've heard it before. The beaver is speaking. That's weird, isn't it? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And both these passages show to us the compassion of Jesus, whether it's for his own disciples, whether it's for this demon-possessed man. He uses his power for good. And so then we can trust him with our fears. These two great truths can get us through many pits in life. See, when we take our eyes off the Lord, we look at our situation, we look and depend on ourselves, we look at the chaos around us, that's when we feel so helpless, that's when we feel so afraid. But it's when we look at Jesus and we recognize his sovereignty and his goodness, when we turn to him in faith, that is when our fears are stilled. And we can know for sure that he really is sovereign and he really is good because he's shown that not just in his in his miracles and not just in his teachings, but in his death and his resurrection. This Jesus, the one we've seen, he's fully God, he's fully man. Creation itself obeys him. It recognizes the voice of its creator. At his word, evil obeys, recognizing his, his power, this, this sovereign, divine king. Does he care for the perishing? Does he care for those oppressed by evil? He cares enough to go to the cross. He gives himself into the hands of death. He gives himself into the hands of evil for us, instead of us, to rescue us. There is incredible goodness. There on the cross, he takes our shame. He takes our sin. He dies the death that you and I deserve. He could have commanded a legion of angels, remember, and destroyed all of his enemies. But he chose not to for us. And he was raised on the third day, conquering sin, conquering death, rescuing us from Satan's grasp, and giving us a certain hope of resurrection of a world that will no longer be touched by chaos and evil. Jesus can be trusted with our fears. Even though we are not in control, we can trust that he is. Now, does that mean that he will never, does that mean he will intervene in every chaotic situation in my life? The answer, of course, is no. He can do something about our problems. He doesn't promise that he always will. But he does promise he will be with us. And he does promise there is a new creation to come when he will deal with our problems fully and forever. So will you trust him with your fears? Will you stop holding on to them, trying to control every situation in life? Will you turn to him, trust him in faith? If we are Christians, 
We do not need to fear death. We do not need to fear viruses. We don't need to be like the old man I mentioned earlier. We are secure in the death and resurrection of our Lord. And if we have received this mercy, if he has saved us from death, just like that demon-possessed man, he gives us the model response, doesn't he? The man begs that he might be with Jesus. He wants to be near him. He wants to be close to him. I wonder when is the last time we had that motivation, that we might beg in prayer, that we might be near Jesus. Now, of course, like the demoniac, we are separated from Jesus. He is in heaven. We are on earth. And he has left us with a mission to speak to those around us of what the Lord has done for us. Have we recognized who Jesus is? Will we respond in fear or in faith? Will we give him our fears and go out on the mission and proclaim his mercy to the world? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, confess to you that we are indeed so limited, so weak, and we are so often afraid. Lord, we thank you for this reminder that Christ is utterly in control of this world, that we are safe in his hands no matter what happens. Lord, we pray for those who are in the grip of of fear and uncertainty, even right now, that you would help them and help all of us to give you our fears, to turn to Christ in trust. Know that you are with us, that you will bring us to a new creation one day. And Lord, having received your mercy, we pray that you would help us to fulfill our mission to tell the world of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. We pray in Jesus' name.